0: The Creative Nonfiction Podcast is sponsored by Goucher College's Master of Fine Arts and Nonfiction. The Goucher MFA is a two-year low-residency program. Online classes let you learn from anywhere, while on-campus residencies allow you to hone your craft with accomplished mentors who have Pulitzer Prizes and best-selling books to their names. The program boasts a nationwide network of students, faculty, and alumni, which has published 140 books and counting. You'll get opportunities to meet literary agents and learn the ins and outs of the publishing journey. Visit goucher.edu forward slash nonfiction to start your journey now. Take your writing to the next level and go from hopeful to published in Goucher's MFA program for nonfiction. If at first you don't succeed, Briff. Oh, man. Hey, it's you. Glad you could be here, man. How you been? Did you get that thing you said you were going to do done? Did the dentist say you should floss more? Yeah, I get it. There's like five surfaces to every tooth. Did you know that? You gotta get in there. Have you cut back on caffeine? You doing dry January? You still dry? That's good. Okay, this is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. Hey, hey. The show where I talk to badass writers, filmmakers, and producers about the art and craft of telling true stories, how they became who they are, and the habits and routines that make them special. So maybe you can apply those tools of mastery to your own work. I'm Brendan O'Meara, but I think you knew that. We got Leanna James Blackwell for you today for episode 135 of this racket. But we'll get there. We're going to talk about a lot of things, and especially her long essay, Lethe, which appeared as issue number 22 of Creative Nonfiction's True Story series, these standalone pamphlets, which are super badass. I love these little things, man. You should subscribe. That's a free shout-out if I ever heard one. Oh, so I I, I did the thing I said I was going to do. And what was that? You know that stupid, shitty-ass book I'm supposed to be finishing and haven't touched since June? Yeah, that one. I started picking through its carcass. I set a time for 20 minutes. I worked for 20 minutes on it. And I'm going to work on it for 20 minutes tomorrow and the next day. To borrow a gym term, this way I don't get too sore and need a rest day or two days and can barely walk to the mailbox. I could work in a giant spurt, you know, that flood of momentum, but what'll happen is I'll get burned out and not get back to it for a week. Meanwhile, I could have been chipping away in 20-minute chunks until I can send this appalling dung heap off to my editor. So that's happening. Hey, do you subscribe to this morass? You can find it just about anywhere, all the usual places. Go subscribe. Go do it. And if you're feeling really c n f and good, leave a kind review on itunes it's If not, you know it's, it's no big deal. I'm here for you, man. I want you to know that. Share this show with just one friend. You are the social network, and this is how we rage. We rage against the algorithm. Tweet me some love at Brendan O'Meara or at c n f Pod and like the show on that despicable social network called Facebook. What else? Oh, yes. Liana came by the show, and I have to warn you. The first half has this odd clicking in the background, but it goes away by the second half. It's a little irritating, but I want you to let you know that I know it's there. Also, I want you to know that Liana is the type of person who was just as eager to ask me questions as I was to ask her. But since I hate the sounds that come out of my mouth, I largely edited that stuff out so you hear more of her... But I wanted to let you know that she is the kind of person who was equally inquisitive and kind. I appreciated that. One last sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by the noun anxiety. He felt a surge of anxiety. Anxiety. A feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. Anxiety. Okay, enough monkeying around. Here's Liana James Blackwell. Party on, CNFers. That's rock and
1: roll.
0: Yeah, the, something that I always like to, at this time of year when I record podcasts, So usually for the first four weeks of the year uh, uh, over the last couple years, I like getting a sense of how uh, artists and writers process a new year what, goals and or resolutions how however you want to frame it and it being that time of year, I wonder what are you, what's your approach to twenty nineteen
1: that is such a good question, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about it because. 2018 was a really challenging year on a lot of levels, um, particularly what's going on in the world and what's going on politically. And I have very strong feelings about that. And there were many things that caused me, I would say, grief, and I wouldn't call that an exaggeration. And yet there were also many, many, many things that I will take with me into the next year that were actually quite inspiring and beautiful. And so I spent some time the first of the year um, sitting with my journal. I do a lot of notebook writing and journal writing, reflecting on the year and writing up not only what hurt, but also what helped and what inspired me and what gave me hope. And doing that was really interesting because there was so much more than I remembered. And as I kept writing, I thought, Oh, yeah, I forgot about this. And I forgot about that wonderful thing. And I just kept going and I filled pages. And I I sort of did it in list form. And I found that when I finished that, I had this renewed sense of purpose, and a feeling that it's going to be okay. My writing is going to thrive, my students are going to thrive, and we're going to get through this period. (laughs) And it might might take a little while, but we're going to get through it. And And that was really helpful. Um, And I actually posted about it on Facebook when my daughter was really little. We used to do this game called Roses and Thorns. And at the end of each day, we would ask her, you know, tell us about a rose, meaning a good thing in your day. And what was a thorn? And there was always something. And it was a way to um, help her learn to articulate her experience and talk about the things that happened. And, you know, a thorn could be someone didn't sit next to me at lunch or You know, a kid was me and a rose would be something else, something lovely, something small. It didn't matter. And so I kind of used that framework for myself. And I found that helped, too, just thinking of it in terms of images, the fact that things are going to be blossoming soon, both creatively on a lot of other levels. Mm. So that's, that's what I did. And what is your...
0: I love that you brought up the journaling and uh, notebook and journaling practice, and that's something I've done for years and uh, adhere to it to this day. And uh, what what is your – or how would you describe your daily journaling practice?
1: I do it first thing when I wake up, and I find that that is the best time because my mind hasn't yet engaged with the busyness of the day. And given my work, I direct a graduate program in creative writing, and there is so much involved with it. As soon as I get to the office, I'm bombarded. And it's all good stuff, but it takes away that inner space that I wake up with. So I wake up, I fumble around, I get some coffee, I reach for my pen. And the first thing I do is write down my dreams. I've been doing that for a long, long time now, and there's a reason for it. Um, Partly is that I find that I get answers in my dreams, particularly because I've cultivated this as a practice, and also because there are images in the dreams that often will work for me in a story or an essay because dream language is different, and dream language is symbolic and archetypal, And often I find those images will help me unlock something in a story. So I do that. I do it first thing in the morning. I write dreams down and notes, ideas that come to me. And then I I follow that with a meditation. And I find that gets my day off to a good start in a way that I notice when I don't do it for a few days.
0: Is it something you, you, these journals and notebooks that you often refer back to? Or is it just something that you sort of? Purge what's on your mind, and then you know you file them away, but you know you it, you don't go back to them at all, or or do you reference them?
1: I do. In fact, I did that yesterday, and it was kind of by accident. I picked up the wrong journal somehow, <laughs> and I flipped through and was looking for an empty page and realized I was that was last year's. And then I thought, I'm going to spend some time with this. And I'm so glad I did because there were things in there that I had meant to remember and refer back to and use in my writing, um, including this idea that I've had for a long time about a retelling of the Dido story from the Aeneas and I've always been fascinated by uh, Queen Dido. And there it was. And this was actually, I wrote down some notes after I read an Elena Ferrante essay in which she talked about that. And I had written it down and it was gone. And then I went back and there it was. I thought, yes, that that's something that I needed to remember in order to do this. So I don't do it all the time because... That keeps me reprocessing the same thing over and over again. Sometimes it's appropriate just to clear and get it out, but other times there are clues there. So every once in a while, it's really helpful. How about you? Do you go back?
0: Uh, Sometimes, but it's hard because I have so many of them and I don't have a really good filing system for them. (laughs) So I don't know where it is. I tried in my my, my current journal to actually have two pages in the back that is kind of an index. So like after mm. so after I write i do two pages, which is about five hundred words every morning. And and then I I would run right to the back page and say on for pages seventy nine and eighty, I just you know, just maybe two or three words about what was the main thing I wrote about. So I could in fact find some I could go to that index and maybe find what I was riffing on that morning or what I was feeling or whatever. Uh, but beyond, uh, but I've kind of just said, oh, who cares? And I, I've kind of s- stopped doing that. So I I, I don't have a, a very good way to go back and actually find anything I've written about unless I maybe put a sticky note on it or something.
1: Thank you. You've just given me a great idea. <laughs> uh, I'm going to do that. I. I have, I just read through the whole thing and it took a long time. So um, filing system, I've never been good at that. Um, that's, I'm going to try that.
0: Yeah, it will. It, in the couple of days that I did, it was, it was pretty simple. I just flipped straight to the back and then while it's still fresh in your head, you can scribble mm-hmm. out like two little things on one line. That way you'll just have like pretty much maybe two pages that, that indexes the whole journal and yeah, it'll save you, save you some time if you're looking for something very specific. And
1: so, hey, mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm glad I could help. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I always find I learn something when I talk to other writers. Um, And even when I work with my students, uh, and I don't mean to say even when as though they wouldn't have good ideas, but just um, some of my students come in and they don't really have necessarily a lot of experience with creative writing. But I find that there are jewels in almost everybody, um, ideas that I get. And so I love these kind of conversations. They're so helpful.
0: Yeah, and that's a big reason why I I love getting uh, tactical with so many of the people that come on the show, whether they be filmmakers or producers or writers, and even if as some the, the questions might seem kind of inane to the to the person, uh, but it could be that there's a listener out there that will take that. The, there's one little nugget that maybe that maybe you said or someone else said, and they can apply it to their own work in some sense. So like, as we're unpacking your origin story as a writer and, and looking into like, as we will, a little bit of leafy here, or your true story essay and all that stuff, as we kind of dance around that, there'll be tactical things that we can apply. And that hopefully people will be like, Oh, that's cool. I'm going to add that to my cart and try it later. And maybe it'll help, you know, empower them and make their work better or get them working in the first place.
1: Well, you're talking to the right person because I, I never believe that there's any such thing as an inane question, and I always say that in my classes there's no such thing as a wrong or a bad question, even if it sounds dumb and for someone and it might not be you, but it might be another person and so it's important, yep, so ask away cool well let's uh, let's even uh, uh back up to maybe
0: you know where you grew up and uh in uh, I suspect you gr- did you grow up in
1: California i did. I grew up in a town in Southern California that was about. An hour and 15 minutes southeast of L.A. So we were in a valley, and uh, this was before there were good air control, air pollution measures. So we were known as the smog bowl. Hmm. <laughs> so I grew up in the smog bowl, and so we we couldn't play outside half the time because our lungs would hurt. That's changed now, but... Um, When I was growing up, that was the case. So, we were, that was our claim to fame.
0: Not being able, (laughs) yeah, not not being able to play outside, did that uh, sort of trigger uh, a very uh, more inward way of play for you and more introspection, even as a young person?
1: That's interesting. I never put that together before, but maybe in a way it just intensified the way I already was, Mm -hmm. which was a, a book. Crazy kid. You're probably not going to talk to a writer who doesn't say that. Um, I think so many of us are the same. As soon as I learned to read, I felt as though I had the key. Whatever it was uh, that I was looking for, books, I would find it in books. So my favorite thing in the world was to go to the library, and it still is go to the library and stock up as many books as I could and then hole up with them, which made everyone else in my family angry. I wasn't supposed to be doing that. I wasn't supposed to be isolating from them, which Mm. is how it was looked at. So there was often this tug and pull, come out of your room, stop reading, put that book down, which I would do reluctantly. But as soon as I could, I'd go right back.
0: What were some of the very early influential books that you were reading as a, maybe as a, as a kid and a teenager?
1: Oh God, I had no sensibility in terms of what was good or bad. I made no distinction at all. I read everything. I would read a cereal box. I read a lot of what I read as it turns out are old, old books that were in my grandmother's house. We spent a lot of time visiting her. And so there were bookshelves filled with books and I would just pull them down So I started with those ancient Nancy Drew mysteries from Mm -hmm. the 1930s. I read all of those. And I read this odd book called Cheaper by the Dozen about 15 times. Um, I read Gone with the Wind. And then as I got older, I started to develop more of a sensibility. And then by the time I was a teenager, I developed this crush on Herman Hesse, which I think is not atypical. I was just reading some kind of um, critical assessment of him. I don't know why I stumbled across it. And ultimately, he's known as the writer that teenagers discover and then grow out of. So I wonder what I would think now. But then I, I started reading books like that. I, After him, I read Thomas Mann. And and then I got interested in books that had a kind of philosophical underpinning. And that's what I started looking for. And Absurdists, I went from there to Kurt Vonnegut and then on.
0: Mm. what uh what's your favorite Kurt Vonnegut book if you can uh, out of his entire collection if you can remember
1: oh god probably breakfast of champions mm-hmm. what about you
0: I my two favorite I've read I think I've read them all and my two favorite I'll even go three I th- I love um mother Sir uh-huh. sirens of titan and bluebeard I would say those are probably my three
1: Oh, he was an influence on me then. Would you say he's still an influence on you now?
0: Yeah, I would say so. I love his <clears throat> his hum his humor that was that's not entirely not very jokey and he could have a just a very dry way of being funny and his writing was so clear and clean and I I've I think I've referred to him in Fred's as one of the, the first bloggers because his books can be so segmented into very short little chunklets and it it kind of reads like these little mini blog posts that kind of string together so i i I love how kind of clear and how lucid and funny he could be
1: that's a way i've never heard him scrap before but it makes perfect sense a kind of antecedent to bloggers but yeah those fragments sometimes um, and each one would contain something, you know, some part wisdom. I liked the way that his worldview was revealed to his humor. And it was a dark worldview, but it also had so much compassion in it. When you think about everything he witnessed in the war and all of that is part of it. And it's very hard to do. Um, as I have found, it's really hard to weave in humor into something when the stakes are that high. And yet sometimes it's necessary. It's necessary to even look at it or to get through it. And I love that about him. And I love writers that can do that.
0: So how did you eventually want to become a writer?
1: I didn't start wanting to become a writer. I wanted to be an actor. I loved film, and I loved theater, and I loved literature. And acting was a way to bring all those things together, but with a physical expression. And given the way that I grew up, there was a lot in my body, I guess I could put it that way, that needed expression. And I loved dance as well. And so I studied theater for quite a long time. I was a member of a theater company. Um, maybe we toured and we put on, uh, we mounted a kind of revival of all the great European absurdist plays So we did Waiting for Godot, and we did Ionesco's The Lesson, and um, we did a lot of Pinter, and I loved that. I really loved experimental theater. But then the realities of being an actor in this world, I started off with a fantasy, you know, of being in some kind of traveling caravan of actors, and I must have seen that in a film somewhere when I was a child, and I still had that in my head, that it was going to be like that. Of course, it isn't, and the art form still moves me and is beautiful, and I still participate in it as a writer, but the reality of being an actor is very, very different, and it took a year in L.A. to cure me of that, and I went back to school to get a a teaching credential, and my idea at the time was, well, I can teach theater because I'd been teaching for a while anyway, teaching and directing. And I had epiphany while I was there that um, it was actually language that had been the strongest motivator for me. It was never being um, famous or being seen. It was about engaging with words to say something powerful and important. And I started writing and it was my instructors who said, I don't know what your plans are exactly, but I think you should keep writing. And I thought, Really? I was shocked by that because it was just something that was never part of the conversation growing up, that it was even within the realm of possibility. But I listened to them, thank God, Mm. and found that I really, really loved doing that more than anything else. But I hadn't given myself permission to dream that.
0: Permission is such a a key word and something I love to talk to people about, like who who in fact gave you – that permission, like, do you do you do you remember the the moment that you know, or what you were writing in the in the person or persons who told you to keep going?
1: I do. I remember it vividly. It was a teacher named Elise Earthman, who was a huge influence on me, and she wasn't teaching writing per se. She was teaching us how to be teachers, and so she taught pedagogy. Uh, but she took me aside once and she said, I want you to know that when the papers come in and your essays, I save yours for last. And I do that because it's my treat. And you can go and be a high school teacher if that's what you want to do. But I hope instead that you become a writer. And wow. <laughs> I was flabbergasted and thought, really, I could, because I had mentioned to me, books were magic. I, I had this sort of worshipful attitude toward them. And I thought, do I dare to enter that world and think that I could do something like that? Um, and I guess I needed someone outside. Wow. That <laughs> How did you eventually
0: process that, you know, as books being sort of these these magical things that it almost feels like someone else can do that it, it, they are the anointed people you know they are they are bound in hard cover and that the, that's the altar at which you worship mm-hmm. at, at what point did you get it into your your brain that that's something that you could do that you could access that with the right mindset and the right amount of rigor and attention to craft and so that you could enter enter that and become you know, one with the people and the books that you that you so worshipped?
1: It was being around other writers. Nothing would have convinced me. I mean, teachers could have said you should do this, but it wasn't until I was around a group of other writers who were struggling like I was, who were also talented people. Um, Many, I thought, were extremely talented, but they had the same doubts, which surprised me and the same fears, and the same dreams, and they felt the same way about books that I did, and being part of this process with them, and learning how, oh, it does not happen magically. It's work, and it's work, and it's work over a period of years, and you get better and better. And forming alliances with some of these writers helped me feel that, okay, now I see more what this really is from the inside, and I can do this because we're all in this together, all of us writers. Even though we're in a room alone, that's the only way to get it done. I know that there are those of us out there, and I know who they are, and I know we're all doing this together, and that we care about the same thing.
0: When you were uh, coming up and starting to maybe take that mantle on a, as a writer, what were um, what how were you, how were you approaching that when you were is sort of given that torch and told that you can pursue this. You know, what did you? What were your next logical steps as you were looking to maybe pivot to be more of a writer versus an instructor? Though, though you do both, but like you know, when they said you should be a writer, um, mm-hmm. what was the next step
1: for you? I started to get very serious about it, and then it was a matter of creating a writing discipline that was going to work within my life, and that's complicated. Uh, for everybody. Um, I know very, very few people who just write. Uh, There are a few people who can do that, but the vast majority of writers, um, writers with all kinds of publications, doesn't matter. Um, Most of us do other things. We teach, you know, we might freelance. I did quite a lot of that as well. And trying to come up with a way that it was going to fit and a way that would keep that creative spirit alive because, The world isn't necessarily set up to support that. Um, We're very externally motivated in our culture, you know, and for good reason. We need to eat and we need to pay bills and we raise our kids and I have a daughter, and all of that. And that's important. It needs to be taken care of. And for me, though, the creative process is quiet and it's internal and it requires a lot of space around it and how to find that in a consistent way with everything else going on that was my main priority and so I would go away to conferences I did a lot of that I went on residencies and retreats and then I would lose it all as soon as I came home mm-hmm. and and so it took many years I would say to find the way to do that and one of the ways as it turns out is um looking at a tendency in myself, and this goes into the realm of psychology and not so much logistics. um, And this is true for a lot of women. As a teacher, I tend to be very invested in my students. As a parent, I'm very invested, obviously, in my child. And yet there's a difference between invested and invested to the point of losing the self and making sure that everyone else is taken care of before I am. And often I would be the bottom of the list and then I just wouldn't get to it. And that was a habit I had to look at really deeply and honestly and just start making some internal shifts. So it wasn't just external. It wasn't just, OK, I'll, I'll set my alarm an hour early, which, of course, I did as well. But it was that. It was making some slight internal shifts, sometimes saying no when I needed to. You know, sometimes saying, mm, "I'm not going to be able to go to that event. I've got this thing to do," and that required, you know, we were talking about permission earlier. That required another level of permission, and, and the permission internally. And for some reason, for me, that took a long time to get to, and I feel as though it's much better now.
0: Yeah, you you even write in in your essay for True Story that you, um, it's a, I, I lost my writing for years. I didn't know how to reconcile motherhood with the time needed alone to think, to woo the distant parts of the self that writing demands. And mm. that's exactly kind of what you're getting to. I mean, it, you said like you lost your writing for years. Um, what was that period like and how many years was it that you lost, you know, lost your writing and lost a big part of yourself in the process? I imagine.
1: I did. Um, I would say that it was a good, oh, seven to 10 years. And it's not that I didn't write. Um, I wrote a lot of magazine pieces for hire. So it wasn't my own work. It wasn't my creative work. I wasn't writing new short stories. I wasn't writing personal essays. I wasn't writing plays. But I was writing for magazines. and, And that was good. It was good to get paid but that creative work wasn't happening at all not to say that the magazine pieces weren't creative they were but not the same it wasn't my own imaginative creative artistic process you know something that i was dying to write about and i felt out of sorts i didn't feel fully myself and i would say that it was it was really hard i mean i was facing a lot with my daughter and some of the challenges she was having, so I don't regret any of that, of course, or any of the time that I spent um, being there. But now that I feel as though I'm back to it, um, and it's been a few years now that I've been reengaged, it's it's very different. I'm I'm a better and happier person this way.
0: That must have been hard to. You know the inertia of having not done it for a long time to the to the extent that you really wanted to. That was it a kind of a, a slow muscle to to train and to to move that boulder after so long being away from the work that was so meaningful to you.
1: It was, and again, finding kindred spirits, finding other people who were working on the same thing trying to get back to their work, trying to find a way to integrate it and honor it. And so making connections, consciously making connections with people who have an artistic process and are writing. I joined a playwrights group, and that was really helpful because we have deadlines. And when it's my turn, I've got to bring some material in. And I found that if nothing else would do it, that would do it. And then it turned out that it's um, a wonderful, very smart, very interesting, and creative group of people who are doing really good work. And that was a huge turning point for me. Yes, the deadlines, having someone say, I'm waiting, I'm expecting it, I'm looking forward to it, I need this from you. And that would sometimes do it when I couldn't do that for myself. And now I'm better at doing it for myself, but I tell my students the same thing. Don't worry if you go through a fallow period, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. Sometimes it's part of the process, but find a community and and hold on to that community because that can really see you through.
0: In the throes of a writing project or ever like and you you've alluded to it with your uh the this idea of community and deadlines, um uh, but how do you appease that loneliness and self-doubt and that that sometimes negative self-talk that can creep in? when you're in those moments by yourself, trying to make something that uh, you're proud of?
1: Oh, you know, that's such a good question. I think about that all the time because, you know, I would like to think at this point, I've been writing for a long time and alive for a long time and thinking for a long time. And um, I have a really good therapist. I'd like to think that I have gotten past negative self-talk and it's just not true. It's, it's there. And I have started to take a different approach to it, which is instead of being irritated that I'm not past it yet, which I have been, I've been in that place thinking, oh my God, I, this again, you know? But I realize it comes up every time I start a new project because every project is different. I feel as though, and I'm not the first person to say this, every new project I'm learning to do something else. I reach beyond what I've done before. And I'm—it's there's not a formula. I'm teaching myself again. And it's not that I'm not drawing on all the things I know how to do, but I'm reaching into something that I don't yet know how to do. So there's that, always that uncertainty. And I remember I took a workshop once with Michael Cunningham. It was shortly after The Hours came out, which is still one of my favorite books. And he said he always tries, if with every new book, to write a book smarter than he is. Hmm. And I love that because I feel as though that's what I'm trying to do. And when something is just out of reach, it does tend to bring up all my insecurities and who do I think I am and what do I really have to say? And I don't know what I'm doing, but I do know what I'm doing. And so I remember that. I remember what he said and I remember little things and the shitty first draft, you know, and how most writers – would never show you their first straps. Mm. And, and it is really okay for me to not know what I'm doing at first, to make a lot of mistakes, to feel as though I'm kind of lost. And because I've done it so many times, i found myself sort of lost in the labyrinth. I'm used to now knowing, okay, I'm going to get out. I'm going to find my way out of here. And it's going to take a little while. So it's almost like stumbling through in the dark, looking for handholds, knowing they're going to be there, but there is that moment before I find the next one that can be literally scary. And I, I do a lot of self-talk now um, when those negative voices come up, because they always do. Mm. And I now sort of know them, and I reassure them. <laughs> I'll sometimes engage. It's almost like a dialogue. I know you. I know what you're trying to do. Because often underneath the negative voice, is something that's trying to protect you. And and that's something that I've learned with a 30-year meditation practice, observing these thoughts. Underneath the thought is almost always, don't do that, something bad's going to happen. I will stop you. Um, our unconscious is always trying to protect us, but it hasn't always learned the best way. And so I will engage with that instead of fighting with it and ask, okay, you're trying to protect me. I know that. Um, but it's really, it's going to be fine. We've done this before. And, you know, talk about sounding a little bit crazy. I mean, <laughs> I find, I sometimes <laughs> have found myself having these conversations out loud, and then I have to laugh and just and keep going. <laughs> it's like, okay, here's this crazy woman talking to someone unseen in the room. It does help. Sometimes, too, I have found that other art takes me out of this um, spiral that I can sometimes get into so I feed myself with music and I like to look at art too I like to I go to a lot of museums and galleries and look at art um, I try to feed myself with different art forms and that sometimes helps break it open too for me mm. and um, makes me feel as though I again, I'm less lonely I'm part of something even if I'm just looking at a beautiful image or listening to a piece of music that that's helps address it too what kind
0: of music do you, do you love?
1: It de- really depends. I have very eclectic taste. Like I, I like everything from the Sex Pistols to the Kronos Quartet. I've been listening to a lot of the Kronos least recently, and then sometimes I like to dive back into some of my favorite 90s music, like Elliot Smith, um, who I still just love. And recently I've been listening to more international music, um international folk music um, there's a lot of really good African pop that's coming out from like for instance nigeria uh, and I listen to that mm. it It depends on on my mood and what I'm trying to work through. How about you
0: i'm uh, I love hard rock, heavy metal that's my go to um uh but I also love tom Petty weezer a lot of a lot mm. of nineties grunge and alternative mm-hmm. rock. Um, some some classic rock, but I, I love I'm uh, I'm I, I, nothing gets me like a, a double bass drums and heavy power chords.
1: <laughs> Did you love Nirvana when oh, they yeah. were
0: but the first? Uh, compact disc I ever purchased was uh, "Incesticide" by Nirvana, which was their album right before "Nevermind," their breakout. I, oh! I think I was maybe twelve or thirteen years old, and you know I had some <laughs> allowance money, and went to the mall and bought that. And you know I they had the parental advisory, explicit lyrics on the cover, and the guy sold it to me anyway without my mom <laughs> around. And it was it was just such a, a cool album. I think Nevermind had been out, but I wanted to, and I had been familiar with it, but that was the, I remember that being the first one I purchased, and I had a uh you know, a disc man that I plugged in these two little, you know, rinky tink speakers into, and that was kinda like my little stereo in my bedroom and I would just listen to, you know, sort of the old Nirvana before they were famous.
1: <laughs> I remember hearing them for the first time in the car on the radio. Oh wow. Um uh-huh and something from Nevermind and wanting to pull over that it hit me that powerfully. So strong. That feeling of, what is this? Who are these? I got to get this. Um, but I'd been listening to a lot of The Clash at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, really love that. And still, to this day, I'll go back, listen to them.
0: Oh, that's cool. Uh, there, there there was something you said um, that triggered something to me when you were talking about taking that class with Michael Cunningham or that seminar um, mm-hmm. about you know kind of sort of working your way through A draft whether you feel like you know you're worthy of writing a certain thing and you know oftentimes um, have you ever heard of the what Ira Glass calls the gap
1: yes do you listen to a lot of this American life all the time yeah all the time
0: all the time and his thing with the gap being like you know you have this great idea in your head and and you don't necessarily have the skills to manifest that vision but over time that gap narrows but some when you have that great idea, whether it be for a short story or an essay, and then you start working through it and it's like, oh, this just, this is not coming out the way I have this vision in my head. Like, how do you grind through that part so it eventually approaches that ideal that you started with, that seed that made you want to even begin that project?
1: Oh, God. Uh, well, for instance, Lisey, that essay. From the beginning to the end was three years, three years. So I started it actually not long after my mother died. And I thought I had and I, I, I wrote it sort of in the heat of that grief and, and the complicated grief. There's a term that Elvis Costello uses in one of his songs, complicated shadows. And and that's exactly the way I felt about it. And I wanted to capture those complicated shadows before I lost them. And yet the draft was nowhere near ready to what I actually wanted to ultimately say and I realized it's too soon. You know, I have some of the first bursts of passion for this, but I don't have the perspective yet. And I needed more time. And so I would continue to go back to it while working on other things. You know, I wrote all kinds of other stuff. I wrote essays. I wrote three plays. But I'd go back to that and I'd take it out. And I'd write it again. And I'd recast it again. I'd start all over. I must have written 25 drafts before I found the one that worked for me. And the key wasn't until – because I didn't know this in the very beginning – I hadn't even made the connection. I reread Virginia Woolf often. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was rereading something about her and looking at the day of her death and realizing that it was the same day that my mom died. And thinking about her and the way she ended her life in the river. And there was something about the river. And from that point, it sort of opened up all the rest of it, the way that it was structured. And so – but that took – a long time, and I just had to be willing to put it aside and then go back and then go back and then go back and know when i know when it wasn't finished but then know when it was, which was hard too
0: the Mary Heather noble, another essayist who i I've sp- spoke to a while ago well well almost two years ago uh, she had an essay in creative nonfiction uh, and she's kind of a nature writer and uh, she spoke of the power of the drawer. And having, <laughs> you know, never and never discarding things be like, you know what, this is something, you know, it's not what I think it can be yet, but don't throw it away. Just put it in the drawer. Maybe in like in the case with Lethe for you it was it was this thing isn't quite ready. You said the the heat of that grief was, you know, too hot to really touch it. But it wasn't until the you know, that strike of that coincidence of rereading Virginia Woolf and finding that the death days were the same and all of a sudden it that was the key that unlocked it but you had to have that initial patience to wait for the right moment to finish the thing and get it across the goal line
1: yes that's right oh god i love the power of the drawer <laughs> yeah that's a great that's great you know she visited um campus we had her come about a year and a half ago for one of our writers days she talked on a panel oh, cool. um she, yeah she's wonderful she's she had a lot to say um, but I don't remember the power of the drawer, but it's true. And I, I say this to everyone I work with: don't throw anything away. You don't know what when you're going to use it, when you might come back to it. Um, there are stories that I wrote, like when I first began my MFA, that I thought, okay, that was just a writing exercise. I'm never going to use this again. But I did. I ended up not using the whole thing, but there was a, something in it that I did use. So uh, yeah, I totally agree with that.
0: When you start Lethe, there's you know, you, you, you talk about the, the five rivers and then there's of course the river sticks, but then there's Lethe, which is the one where you drink from that, you forget everything you're cleansed, and then there's uh what's the Nemesine River, which Yes where you exactly. remember everything. And so at what at what point did you make the conscious decision to steer the, the tone of the essay? towards one river or the other?
1: Oh, that's a really thoughtful question. I think the the problem of memory, how it works, what it is, how we use it, what it means, has preoccupied me my whole life. And partly because I grew up in a home in which we were only permitted to remember some things and not others. And it was never spoken that way, but it was made very clear. So there were always things that were off limits that we weren't supposed to remember. It was always like this door um, that we couldn't open. It it was right there in the house and everyone knew it was there, but we were supposed to walk by and pretend either that it wasn't there or that it just had to stay locked. And I was always the kind of kid, if you told me I couldn't go someplace or there was a door I couldn't open, that's exactly what I wanted to do. And... (laughs) I would find, I would search the whole house until I found that rusty key, you know, at the bottom of my father's toolbox. And then I would go and I would open it. And so I think just having had that as a foundation for the way that I think about memory and why I think it matters, why I do think it's important, and also what I've come to learn about it, which is over the years, so much research has been done about the way we store memories and about our neurochemistry and also the way that our entire body is wired in such a way that we remember memories in our body as well. And so there's a lot of research being done with people like, for instance, with PTSD and where those memories are stored and understanding that memory lives in a lot of different places in us. And... Sometimes we have to bypass our traditional ways of thinking about memory and access it in an alternative way. And there are things there that we can discover. And once I learned that and started doing that kind of work, I found that I knew a lot more than I thought I knew and that I could access things, not necessarily word for word, um, but I could access entire scenes that I thought were lost. There is so much there. And then it became almost a quest, you know, like an excavation to uncover that and to look at what it could teach me. And I think that's what made me decide it's got to be the moon sign because I can't write about her accurately unless I remember all of these things. And the trick was to write about it in such a way that had compassion for her choice rather than condemnation of it. It's not a choice that I make and I don't think it was the right one, but I understand it and I have compassion for it and that took some time too.
0: I I love this idea that, you know, you had this essay kinda of kicking around for a while and then it wasn't until you reread Virginia Woolf that it, the floodgates kind of opened. And what was that mm-hmm. moment like when you reread that passage and, and 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 how quickly did you get back to the drawer and pull this out and say, like, I gotta and you know what was that creative flourish like once you read uh and made that connection with wolf and your mother
1: it was immediate it was really interesting it wasn't like ha huh, you know i think i should that might be an idea it wasn't like that at all it was almost electrifying mm. it's it felt as though i had this sudden burst of energy i i could literally feel it like in my veins um i have to go and do this Like now, (laughs) nothing else, you know, I don't care. I'm not going to, it wasn't so as extreme as I'm not going to eat and I'm not going to speak to anyone, but it was very, very fast after that. The final, final polishing draft, of course, took, took some more time, but once I clued into what the structure should be, then it was immediate and absolutely, I would say it was almost an ecstatic feeling. And you know, writers, we don't get that all often. But when we do, I feel it's import- so important to jump on it right away. Don't wait when that idea comes. Don't wait. Grab it. Run.
0: I love. Uh, I love that you alluded to structure too. That's something um, I love getting into. I don't get into it as often as I'd like, but uh, uh, with with uh, with people on the show. But it's so important because. It, things can be artful that do have scaffolding in everything and that will actually allow the art to come through in a more fluid way if, if you pay attention to that. So how did you approach the structure of this essay and, um, and then how did you, you – yeah know, just what was the structure you had in mind and how did you manifest it and how did that help you create what you
1: created? The original structure I had was fairly chronological this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And that I found that that simply could not represent the actual experience of memory, which is not chronological. And because memory is circular, and because we visit many times and many places during the course of a single day, um, our consciousness is multidimensional and simultaneous. So it's possible, without getting too esoteric here, it's possible to be in multiple time zones at once. And I wanted to get at that, that feeling that while we're doing something in our daily life, there's something else that might've happened 20 years ago that is informing us in that moment. Or there's something that we can see that driving down the road that can trigger a flood and it can come out of nowhere and we can be consumed with it for a moment, and then we can go back, but I wanted to get at that sort of this circular way that memory works, and also the way that um the water flows and so thinking about the river and the way that rivers will widen and expand, then they will become very powerful, and there might be parts that are actually white water, and then the river narrows again, and then the river turns. I wanted to get this idea that we had we ourselves had immersed in the river, and that we were following it, and that there were times when we were sort of circling back, and then times when we were rushing forward, and that helped me figure out the structure.
0: If you've encountered feelings of jealousy and competition among peers, like how you process that, and if you've processed it at all, or if you've experienced it at all, how you go about um, sort of dealing with that. it's I think it's something a lot of people deal with, certainly me.
1: Oh, I think everybody does. And I think anyone who says, "Oh no, I've never been jealous in my life." I'm happy for you is, is is well full of it. Um yeah, they're No. Cool. Yep. <laughs> they're full of it. Of course we do. It's 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 human. I mean, of course we're going to feel that way. I think oh, I wish I would have won that prize. You know, I wish I would have been chosen to X, Y, and Z. Um, oh, I can actually give you a perfect example. Um, it was when I was working with Michael Cunningham. And you know he's a writer that I just admire very much. And um, at one point during the workshop, he took aside two students um, to confer with. And they came back and we were all saying, what did he say? What did he say? And you know it was something like, well, he said we had a lot of potential and he was thinking that maybe he could make a connection. And so for everybody else, You know, there was this moment of, oh, okay, (laughs) you know, oh, why didn't he pick me? And and I remember that feeling acutely and um, feeling very sad about it. I spent a whole day sort of feeling sad about it. And then what happened is it sort of stole my enjoyment of what was happening the rest of the week. And I, I recognized that. And I had to ask myself, do I want this to keep dominating my experience or do I want to go back to how much fun I was having before? Because it was, it was wonderful. And I made a conscious choice. And the other thing that helps me with it, because it comes up still, is thinking about why I do this. Um, And I do this because I love it. First, the rest of it is gravy and it's great. It's great. And that is maybe an evolution, just becoming more mature as a person. You know, at first we think about, and it's natural too because of the culture we live in. We think about prizes and we think about 30 under 30, you know. Mm -hmm. And we think about um, who's getting recognition and who isn't and who was the first to get an agent. But if I think more about why I do this and what my experience is writing, um, if I go back to how much I love it, And what the joy is in finding the right word to describe something that I've been carrying around my whole life. And when I find the way to describe it, there isn't anything else like that. And if, yes, of course, I want it published and out there. So I was thrilled with True Story. Um, And yet I just, I remind myself why I do it. And it really helps. Uh, The fact that you did it is a start. And if you keep doing it long enough, you will get that. It's hanging in there too, you know, and the hanging in there part is the hardest for a lot of the writers that I know just, and that's why it's so important to, you know, have a personal practice um, and not just of your writing, but to, you know, be good to yourself in your life because it's hard what we do. And where do you feel
0: most alive and engaged in, in the process?
1: I think one of your, the questions that you had sent to me to think about beforehand, you know, whether or not we got to it, was what do I like more, writing or editing? Mm, and, yeah, yeah. And I thought, now oh, that's a good one because for me, a lot of the time they're almost the same thing. And I love getting the ideas down, but I think one of my favorite things is when I go back to what I wrote, say, the day before – And or the week before and start crafting. And that is a joy for me. And I I don't know um, what it is that I love so much about it. Um, Getting really deep down at the sentence level and and finding, no, it's not that word. It's this word. uh, um, There's something missing here. What is it? Uh, Maybe it's that same thing of solving the puzzle there must be something in me that loves to do that. Um, but it's, again, it's that thing of opening doors. You know, I get it done and then I've created a sort of structure, but I have to fill it in. And that filling in is so, I find it Im- immensely pleasurable. I could do it all day and all night. Mm. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, Leanne, I want to be uh, mindful of your time. I, this has a, been a really fun and illuminating conversation to learn about you and your process to the work and your wonderful essay with true story. Um, uh, lastly, like, where can people um, find you online and get more familiar with your work if they're not already familiar with it?
1: Through the university where I teach, there's a lot. I keep a blog, and it's the director's blog, and so there's a lot of stuff there um, about. I do a lot of interviews with writers too on that blog and I talk about writing and so they can find that on the university website, which is Bay Path University. And I am in the process actually now of um, putting together a new website. So I'll let you know <laughs> Cool, cool. as soon as that is ready and that, that will gather together everything, which is a process I've been needing to do forever.
0: Yeah. Nothing wrong with, uh, not being a, a total, you know, or being a somewhat digital recluse. I'm kind of receding from, from that quite a bit. Um, It's, I I wish, I wish there was a better way to, or a more, just a better way to broadcast if you have work or something to reach people than, than social media. But I think it's a, it's a necessary evil, unfortunately, but, uh, but I've been pulling back quite a, quite a bit uh, to just, put my time elsewhere
1: <laughs> I know what you mean um, I have a Twitter and I, it's again through the university I use it but it's all about writing yeah. and so um, I can be found there too I think it's Bay Path MFA um, CNF and so found there as well and yeah like when, when I get this organized in one place um, I will certainly let you know
0: Per usual that was fun and enlightening wouldn't you say mhm okay. I mean you could tell me yourself you could very well log into your twitter account and tweet me some of the that brendan O'Mara and at cnf pod I'm off leash from twitter so I only check it at night for about 10 to 15 minutes but I like retweet or reply when you're cool and you're always cool no one's been a dick yet any questions just give a shout i'm here for you man what else Uh, oh yeah link to the show on social and head over to brendanomero.com that's me for show notes and to subscribe to my monthly reading list newsletter where i share my book recommendations and what you might have missed from the world of the podcast once a month no spam can't beat it Thanks again to our sponsors, Goucher College, MFA, in Nonfiction, as well as the Non-Anxiety. I think that's it, friend. Have a CNF and great week, and we'll do it all over again in seven days' time. Remember, if you can't do, say it with me, interview. See ya.